Welcome back to another edition of The Yoke with Doke. If you haven't yet, check out our first two episodes on Golf Course Architecture 101. Also, be sure to check out Tom's books for more golf course architecture information. I highly recommend The Little Red Book and The Confidential Guides, both of which are available on renaissancegolf.com, Tom's website. Thanks, and here's episode three on Wiley Country Club, the Sony Open, and Seth Rayner. holding back but don't toss the yolk and the famously candid dope doesn't pull any punches how do i make natural looking contour hire the biggest fool in the village and tell him to make it flat first overrated underrated rough terribly overrated over the years Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another Yoke with Doke. Uh, today we are discussing Wildlife Country Club, Seth Rayner, and the Sony Open. So very timely. It's uh, January. Golf season's kicking off. Tom, tell us when you got started working at Wildlife. It's funny. I don't remember exactly how long ago it was. It must be about five or six years ago now that they've that they finally uh sent out like rfps to golf course architects looking for a consultant they hadn't done much with the golf course for for many years and i know that like jim urbino when he worked with me you know would stopped in there once or twice because he was a really big rainer fan and was hoping that they he could hook him into doing something with us and they just weren't interested in talking to anybody back then I mean, one of the things about Wiley, it's a really busy club. You know, Hawaii is a 12-month golf season. They play something like 50 or 60,000 rounds a year on that golf course. They really like to play golf, and it seems like it's always busy. So, you know, even if they want to do work to the course, it's like, when? You know, usually we do work in the fall or winter when things quiet down and there is no fall or winter in Hawaii, they're just playing the golf course 12 months out of the year. So they, you know, they're interested in architecture, but they don't want it to be a disruption. And that makes it hard to, to carry out work at the club. So we're kind of, you know, we've kind of working on two holes at a time. And some of that's due to the tournament too. You know, the tournaments every year, the end of January or first of February. And, so everything's got to be back in pristine and you can't tell that we did anything by that time of year. So that pretty much means that when we are going to do work is pretty soon after the tournament. So give it as long as possible to recover and get back into shape. But that's also one of their busiest seasons. That's when people from outside Hawaii are going to Hawaii in the winter. That's uh, yeah, I didn't ever think about it, but Hawaii has literally no dead time with golf. As if everywhere has a dead time, but they not don't. Every, Myrtle Beach has no dead time either. But well, I I wouldn't go to Myrtle Beach in the summer. That seems like well, you say that, but that's you know Myrtle Beach is packed in the summer with people at the beach. That's uh, that's one of the reasons it's you know that Myrtle Beach is so successful as a golf destination. It's like four four seasons they're playing every season. 
but we're on Hawaii today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got to stay in Hawaii, stay on topic. Um, so Stephen Britton asks, I once read George Bato had Rayner's original concept drawings for Wiley. How does How do you go about gathering all the historical information for a project like Wiley? Do you have someone employed who's doing the job and like research when it's at a historical site? Uh, no, most of the clubs that we work with have some sort of official or unofficial club historian who's been digging through that stuff for years to write a club history book or something. So they've, they've usually got a lot of stuff on offer already, you know, depending on the golf course and how much, how an extensive a project that we're doing, um, and how much detail we are trying to find, you know, occasionally I've paid somebody to go do more research because the worst feeling in the world is to rebuild a green. You think you got it right. And then the next year somebody digs up an old picture of it and you're like, damn, <laughs> I wish I'd had that before we started because <laughs> we didn't really get that exactly right. I mean, it's very hard. If you've only got an aerial photo to work from, you get it right in two dimensions, but you you know, you don't really have any idea in the third dimension of how deep the bunkers were or or how much contra there was in the green. And, um, you know, when you're working on a course that someone like Rayner built, who had a very particular program to what he was doing, you can sort of interpolate from the other versions of holes that you've seen what the contours in the green might have been like if you've got nothing else to go with. Um, but you'd certainly rather have as much photography of the finished course as possible and not just the aerial photo. Mm -hmm. I mean, the aerial photo is really important for like exactly where things were, but as for 3d and how the shaping was, you need photos from the ground if they've got them. Wiley has good aerial photos. They don't have a lot of really good ground photos of what it looked like. I, I saw there, they've been like a host for 65 years. So is it that long? I, I didn't really, th that's probably right. Going back into the sixties or, Late fifties. That's probably right. I got like a press release about the extension of the, and it was, it was something was in there. But um, so, you know, how much had the golf course been altered before? Like, I mean, obviously, you probably had a lot of photo photos of the early days of the tournament. Did it get you know messed up? You know, kind of throughout the years. Well, I mean, as a general rule, a lot of these courses that we that we're doing restoration to were built in the 1920s. And then in the thirties and forties, the world changed and a bunch of stuff went down and, um, maintaining the golf course was not the highest priority. Mm -hmm. So in most cases, the depression was the big, the big item, but you've probably heard of a little thing that called Pearl Harbor that happened yeah. about 10 miles from Wailai. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, ons, the, the onslaught of World War II, you know, the golf course was basically abandoned for three or four years, and they had, like, serious barbed wire laid out over the golf course to prevent Japanese troops from landing, as strange as that sounds. Yeah. But once bitten twice shy <laughs> so they were always concerned about possible further attacks so Wiley for two or three years was kind of an army training ground and it's amazing that they didn't tear it up more than they did in that process 
mm-hmm. but coming out of the war, you know, getting the golf course back wasn't the highest priority for a while, so it it took a while, and and then some things really changed about the golf course in. I think around 1960, I'm not sure of the exact date that the course was changed, but there was there was a very significant change. Some of the original holes are no longer there. The Kahala Hotel is there. Yeah. And some houses are there. And, you know, we can't put that back. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody wants us to tear down the Kahala Hotel, even though the first hole playing through what is the Kahala Hotel along the beach would have been a great opening hole. Mm-hmm. But we'll never see that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, as a question we had was, you know, what what were the biggest changes that happened over the years, and and what are the biggest changes that you've made over the years at Wiley, and that's from Graham O'Connor Brooks. Okay, so the first thing we've got to do is decide for sure. You can tell me which way you want to go, whether we're talking about the golf courses you see it on TV for the Hawaiian Open or the golf course, the way the members play it, because they flip the nines for the tournament. I think um, it probably would be best if we went the way the tournament goes. Okay, so I have to, I'll, so I'll have to watch myself because, you know, what's the back nine for the tournament, and those are pretty much the only holes you see on TV, is the front nine for the members. So, the front nine for the members, you don't see much about the. Uh, you don't see the 10th hole very much on TV at all, or at mm-hmm. least not that I can remember. But the original first hole, the, the clubhouse is by the beach. It, it's kind of slightly removed from the golf course. It's like the, the, the holes come together at a pro shop, and then across the street is a clubhouse parking lot, and then the clubhouse, and the clubhouse is right on the beach. But originally, the first hole played straight along the beach out uh, that would be east, um, out along the ocean. The first, the first and second holes both. So what's now ten and eleven on the current course, played with the beach on the right, and then sixteen and seventeen came back in the opposite direction with the beach on the left. And the only one of those four holes that's still in that configuration is the 17th for the tournament, the Redan hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, 16, what was 16 was turned into a dogleg left to the old 16 green site so they could build some houses along the beach at the far end of the course. And what was the first fairway and the second tee is now the Kahala Hotel. So that changed the entire back nine for the tournament. Sounds like it changed the whole story of the of the golf course too. Yes, kind of. Yes, and you know, I I think it's fair to say that the club in the fifties and sixties didn't value Seth Rayner as having been a significant architect or something that they should historically preserve. You know, I don't know how much of the decision was financial. Clearly, somebody made a lot of money off the hotel and the real estate, and you would think that the club made some of that. Um, but they didn't have, you know, Rayner's name or reputation to balance it against. You know, it might have been a, you know, it might have been the only financial decision that kept the club going. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of clubs 
that were close to decisions like that back in the day. I've got a map of Chicago Golf Club from the 1950s showing 30 half-acre home lots inside the golf course. Oh, my gosh. You know, they were going to put streets in and have a few lots in the middle between golf holes. Exactly the routing that it is now. Pretty hard to visualize. <laughs> when you see the plan of it, it's pretty shocking. I don't know how seriously they considered that idea, but a lot of fairly famous golf courses considered stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Some of them fortunately rejected it. <laughs> it's, uh, that's a, uh, the, the Chicago golf, like given its state now is like, it's, I mean, that's crazy to even. Th- it's pretty hard to imagine. Yeah. So I sort of answered half the question. You know, the fact that they changed those three holes on the back nine really changed a bunch of other holes on the back nine. Um, let me think in order. So 10 was moved inland. Mm-hmm. It actually plays down what used to be the 18th fairway coming back. Number 11 which was an Eden hole. Um, the green, the green site is about where today's green site is. And, but they played to, they play to it like straight. I think that would be South playing straight out toward the ocean with the ocean behind, which funnily enough, that's the way the real Eden hole is. You yeah. know, play with the river behind the green. And, so one of the first things I suggested there was restoring, you know, not restoring that hole because we can't put it back with the beach on the right. That's where the pool is for the Kahala Hilton. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, twisting the green around and making it an Eden-type green again with the bunkers like the Eden hole that was one of McDonald's favorite templates, or Rainers in this case. And, you know, using the the beach behind the green is more of a feature of the hole the way it is on the Eden Hall at St. Andrews. Um, then the 12th and 13th holes are both pretty much the original Rainer holes mm-hmm. with, um, I think the 12th green was changed a little bit. But 14, 15, and 16 were all changed completely when yeah. they moved 16 inland. Mm-hmm. Then 17 is an original hole. And then 18 is not an original hole at all because, because the 10th hole had to be moved to where the 18th was. The 18th had to be flipped further inland, even though the T is pretty close to 17 green right out by the beach. So that's why the 18th hole is such an awkward, sharp dogleg to the left off the T. And that's something they've battled with ever since they made the change. You know, it's you drive if you're playing the back to you drive out of a out of a bit of a shoot with a bunch of palm trees and they've kind of you know they've kind of put the palm trees tight on the left deliberately to try to stop people from cutting the corner um which doesn't stop the pros too much no uh but it's it's a it's a pretty awkward feel off the tee it's something when you see it for the first time in person it's not like you know it, it almost looks like in a soccer match where, you know, there's a penalty, not a penalty kick, but a free kick, and they line up a bunch of players between the goal and the, and the, the where the ball is starting so, so the guy will have to bend it around. That's what those trees look like on that hole. 
yeah that that's a it's that hole doesn't seem like a, many many ones that Rainer designed he didn't have many sharp snap dog legs that, that yeah hole. so that's you know that's one of the holes on our list for next year after the tournament's over that we'll probably try to tackle but um so which holes have i changed you know any rainer course the first holes that people look at are the the four template par threes because he built pretty much the same set of four par threes on every course that he'd done and at wiley most of them had been changed um so for tournament's sake, what the members play as the back nine, the fourth hole is a Biarritz hole, a really long par three, raised green with a big dip. Used to be in the middle of the green. Now it's at the front of the green because the front part of the green, they, they didn't mow as, they just mowed as fairway for a long time. Um, that was probably the hole we changed the least, but they had kind of shrunk the green in at the side. So, you know, the green wasn't entirely on the platform. And if your ball, you know, hit the green and started to trickle off and down the bank, it just stopped in the rough. And we just got them to mow the green out bigger so the balls would get off the tabletop and maybe into some trouble at the sides. Um, the, what's the seventh hole for the tournament, the 16th for the members, is the short hole. It's a 150-yard par three with a big wide green, with a pretty severe kind of, I've called it a horseshoe shaped contour in the green that divides it into left and right and kind of a bowl in the front. Mm -hmm. um, a little different than some of the other ones I've seen, but clearly it was that concept. There was that shape in the middle of the green, so you couldn't mistake what they were trying to do. Um, we've done some work on the bunkering around that green to you know go back to having it tighter to the green like it was originally, but, and, and expanding the green out the full pad. I mean, that green was probably only two thirds as big when we first looked at it five or six years ago as it is now. Mm -hmm. Um, I talked a little bit about, a bit about the Eden hole already twisting the green 90 degrees and because the hole plays in a different direction now and, you know, trying to get where you could play a ball. There's kind of a low right pin placement that you could feed the ball too if you were a if you were an amateur player the the pros will just hit it right over the bunker right at that thing mm -hmm. um it's cool that the you know it's a windy place and that hole's crosswind a lot of the time so you know and we're talking severe winds in hawaii it's you know 20 and 30 mile an hour gusty winds so you know it's a tough hole in the crosswind um and it does have an effect on it's it's actually Usually it's crosswind left to right at tournament time and uh, trying to keep the ball on the left side of the green and not have it take the slope and go down to the right is the hard part. And then 17 was the Redan hole. Mm -hmm. And at some point in the, I think it was the 1980s, they changed the Redan green and basically flattened it. I mean, it was built originally to have a pretty steep bank up at the back right corner and slope from right or front right down to the back left, mm -hmm. like all Redan holes. And for whatever reason, I think it was Desmond Muirhead that was the consultant there for a while and 
he didn't care about that history or whatever. He flattened the green. So it had the, you know, it had that kind of angular shape to it, but didn't have any tilt that you could play into the opening in the green and try to let it feed around the bunkers. You just had to hit it straight over the bunkers. And I didn't realize until I started digging that it, that that change was pretty recent. Um, you know, so I, I like, I talked to a couple of players, you know, I talked to Ben Crenshaw cause he remembered the whole from, he, he played it at least a couple of times before they changed it, uh-huh. you know, trying to feel out how, you know, how much tilt it had before we went to restore. Cause we didn't really have any good information on that to go by. Uh-huh. All we have now is the knowledge that the green's a lot faster now than it was 30 years ago. So we better not put too much tilt back in it. Um, but we, we restored both, well, we did 11 first, and then we did 17 just last year. So this is the first year they're playing the tournament on the new 17th green. And I hope it works well, because <laughs> that'll be kind of a focal point, seeing how it's the 71st hole of the tournament. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that, that one, uh, you, you just don't want to have a, a Shinnecock situation with like the u.s open a few years ago no that's true that was a redan hole too (laughs) and by the end of that event everybody thought the redan was the worst idea in the world yeah um so what uh what do you gain if anything from watching the pga tour play at a course you consult and that's from brian m Mm. i suppose i would gain more if i if I had a chance to watch the tournament in person, uh, watching on TV, you get a little sense of how it's working, but it's, you know, cause you know, the contours, but it's still hard to really gauge what's going on. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm thinking as much about the membership as I am about what's going to happen in the tour event. Yeah. Obviously, you know, anything that's potentially controversial, is going to be magnified by the tournament by a hundred times. <laughs> you know, if I build a green that's too severe on one of my own courses, people bitch about it, but you know, it's not out there for the world to complain about. Um, so we have to be a little more conservative on building greens for anything that hosts an event. And that's, you know, one of the things about my design career is, for a long time, I was kind of immune to that. You know, when I started, I'd work for Pete Dye. And when I worked for Pete Dye, every, except for Long Cove, every project that we worked on was a potential tour site. Stadium course at PGA West. Those kinds of places. And, you know, Pete was cognizant that all the eyes of the world were on him and You know, I'd certainly seen from the reaction to TPC at Sawgrass that the players were not afraid to speak up, especially when it was a TPC course and they felt like they owned it. It was like open season on the architecture. So I'm not going to say Pete got any more conservative in that situation, but I think he was more conservative with green contours Mm -hmm. because he knew that if the green speeds got up really high for an event, which they're very likely to do, that you could look foolish on something that played fine in normal circumstances when they crank the green speeds up for a tournament. And I think that a lot of architects, you know, certainly Jack Nicholas has to think the same thing. Every course that he's doing is a potential tournament site. So 
I better not let this get away from me. And I was immune to that when I was building High Point. It's like, mm-hmm. they're never going to have a tournament here. You know, when the client said something about having a tournament, I just, you know, I laughed. I was like, you're going to spend $5 million to host a tournament? Because <laughs> if you're not, I shouldn't be worrying about that. <laughs> and, and I, you know, and I never thought that, that my early courses would want to get the greens super fast because that costs more money. Yeah. And the average golfer isn't banging on the door demanding that, or at least they weren't 20 years ago. Seems like more and more do. Um, and so I've probably gotten a little more conservative over time with my own greens, just seeing the trends and, and, and having had a conversation with a client at the beginning about how fast are these greens going to be, and then going back three years after the course is open, and that conversation was apparently a distant memory because what they told me and what they are are two entirely different things. So now you have to allow for the fact that the greens are going to be faster than you might want them to be. Um, but especially when I'm doing restoring work on an older golf course, um, you have to be more conservative working at a course like that than you do on your own new designs when you're building a course from scratch it's like you can do anything and you know a lot of people might not like it and that's still okay as long as there are enough people to like it that it will survive as a business Mm -hmm. you know some people can hate it and that's that's okay as long as some people love it too but when you go into a club there's hundreds of members they all join presumably because they like it the way it is. You're making changes. It's all a matter of opinion. You're really sticking your neck out there to make any big changes. It's a lot easier when you can make those big changes in the name of restoration mm-hmm. than, oh, this is my clever new idea because I'm smarter than whoever built this 50 years ago. Yeah, I imagine renovation is a much more sensitive subject when you're when you're then restoration, you know. You yes, and that's why, you know, that's why a lot of things that are billed as restorations aren't really. You know, even even when architects are renovating courses, if they stay if they say it's a restoration, it's like back off membership, you know. This is history, so you don't get any say, but then they, you know, then they take real liberties with what restoration means. They're moving bunkers to where good players will hit it now as opposed to where the bunker really was. Mm-hmm. And something, you know, they could be changing the course dramatically and still call it a restoration. Um, for the most part, when we do restoration work, we're putting back what was on the ground back in the day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes that means that the bunkers are like shorter off the tee than you would expect. And sometimes the clubs have added bunkers further out. You know, certainly a place like Wileye's added a bunch of bunkers where the pros hit it now, which is way farther than Seth Rayner ever visualized in his wildest dreams. And, you know, it's kind of a case-by-case basis. Do we take those out or do we leave some of them? Mm-hmm. And we sort of split the difference on that. We've, we've left some that we think are, are important to play nowadays but we've taken some out that we think are just overkill and don't really have a whole lot to do with how people play the hole. It's, it's got to be especially tough with the tour because you've seen like the, the distance has boomed like crazy in the last 
five to 10 years. Like you've seen the driving distance go up. But now, 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 they say that's not true, you know, and, and to be fair, it's more like it happened more like 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. And, it, you know, they like to point out that it hasn't changed so much in the last 10 years, but that was kind of after the cat got out of the bag. Yeah. The, um, the, the average driving distance of the world's top, t- top 15 players is like, uh, I think their average rank in the, in the, on the tour is like 26 and a half. And in 1997, I think that was like they were. It was like 81 or 75, something like that. Oh. So the game has changed, and I think it has. The distance is certainly there's changed. Any doubt that it's changed. <laughs> Justin Thomas last year kind of uh, took a, di- a route to Wiley. Wiley's always been considered. You hit it to the corners, and this is from Andrew S. Okay. And you, it's a precision course, and he was the first one that just hit it over trees and cut all the corners and, and really exposed it with a high trajectory and being on, on point. Can a course like Wiley really test, be a test to the world's best is what his question. One of Wiley's defenses has always been wind mm-hmm. and they haven't had that much wind for the tournament in the last couple of three years. In fact, from what they say in Hawaii, the climate's changing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Nobody would offer a theory on why that would be. <laughs> but, you know, the, the winds, which were very predictable from season to season, it's just trade winds at certain times of the year and onshore winds other times of the year, that predictability has been a little more messed up. And, and the clubs say that the last two tournaments, the wind just hasn't been anything like what they used to see that same time of year. So, you know, that makes the golf course play differently right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you design a course and you expect it to be windy most of the time, which they certainly would have at Wiley, you have to build a little more leeway into the shots because, you know, Lynx courses don't have a lot of bunkers in front of the green because they're always thinking about, well, what happens if you have to play this whole downwind at 30 miles an hour? And... You know, I could, I could just barely carry that bunker, but the ground's hard as a rock, and there's no way anybody's shot would stop on the green in those circumstances. So Wiley, I think, has a little more leeway built into it and not quite as much bunkering in front of the greens and up close. You know, that makes it that much more vulnerable to scoring, especially when you're not getting the wind. So I hope it blows like hell for the tournament. <laughs> that would... That would you know, it might make our new changes to uh, a couple of greens seem that much more severe. But for the golf course overall, I think that's what it was intended to be. Now, as for how Justin Thomas is playing the golf course, he's being much more aggressive and taking lines that guys wouldn't have thought of 15 or 20 years ago, which works great if you're hitting it right in the center of the club face, Mm -hmm. you're also taking more risk when you do that. You know, it might not work for him as well this year if he's not hitting it as pure because, you know, anytime you cut a, cut the corner of a dog leg that much, you know, now you're, now you're playing kind of across the landing area instead of straight down it. And you're more likely to hit the ball into the rough. If you get the line a little wrong or you just, it a little farther than you thought 
So I don't necessarily think that, you know, the lines he's taken makes the golf course defenseless. Um, it makes it trickier and he really has to pull off the shots. You know, it's just if there's a lot of players that can hit it that far and take those lines and hit nine iron into the par fives, um, then it's hard for the rest of the field to play conservatively. Yeah. You know, if they know the target score, the target score at Wiley has always been way under par. I think it's usually about 20 or so. Yeah. Right I mean, and you know, I mean, somebody shot 26 or 28 under there a long time ago. It wasn't yeah. just the last couple of years. So, you know, most of the players are going to be really aggressive on a golf course like that just because they, they have a number in mind of what it's taken to win this tournament. They have, and they have, they have such a long history with it mm-hmm. that they're not going to guess wrong. You know, like sometimes for the U.S. Open, you'll see them like overestimate how hard the golf course is or overestimate how easy it is. And, you know, they'll attack the, they'll attack the golf course. They think they can attack the golf course and then they find out, oh, that was a bad idea. But usually in the U.S. Open, it's more the other thing. They're scared and they play very conservatively. And then somebody comes along and, you know, runs away from them pretty fast just by having one good round, separates themselves pretty far from the field, and it's hard for anybody to catch up. Yeah. I uh, I think that's a, it's a valid point because people expect low. So they – but then you see the cut usually isn't that low there. It's a – you know, it's a – Higher, but there's a dispersion, and it could be that the you you know the guys that aren't, and Justin Thomas came in there last year after winning, at um, at Kapalua. I mean, he shot nothing there, and he I think he had finished second in his start before that. So he was clearly in a groove, and you yes. know maybe he wasn't wouldn't take those lines if he wasn't in a groove. So uh, something I hadn't thought about. Maybe I mean one of the best things. Um. I've ever heard, I've heard it from a couple of tour players. The first one to say it to me was Scott Verplank. I've known him since he was an amateur. Mm-hmm. We were, a friend of mine uh, was hosting him at his house in Chicago the week that he won the Western Open as an amateur back in the 80s. Um, and Scott said, you know, what people don't realize when they're watching TV is that everybody they see is playing better than normal for them. That's why they're in the hunt to win a tournament that week. You know, like when he won the Western Amateur, he said Ben Wright made a big deal of he hit driver eight iron on the 17th hole at Butler National. He's like, I don't do that all the time. You know, that's like, I'm not even a long hitter on a tour. That's more like a driver five iron for me. But, you know, I was hitting everything just perfect that week. That's why I won. So, you know... It makes you, when you watch TV every week, you think the pros are superhuman, but you're only seeing all the guys that are in the groove and playing really well. You know, I mean, the most compelling, the most compelling event in golf is the Ryder Cup. And the reason is those guys were picked months in advance and they are not all in the groove. Yeah. And having all that pressure combined with the fact that they may not be playing well right then is really daunting for them but really interesting to watch Mm -hmm. but week to week you don't get to see that you turn on the tv everybody's hitting it well yep and you you don't see a ton of shots either but that's another subject for another day (laughs) 
<laughs> um, all right. Uh, Andrew Bailey wants to know what, and we're going to shift gears to Rainer and architecture a little bit more. What templates are talked about too li- too much, and which ones are talked about too little? Oh, too much. All of the template part threes, I think, are talked about a little too much because it's all they're always they're always there on every Rainer and McDonald course, and they've been analyzed to death. <laughs> you know, I'm tired of them anyway. I'll put it that way. Now, that's not to say that I don't think the Redan is a great hole. You know, I've built five or six versions of the Redan hole myself on 35 courses. But I've kind of stopped. You know, I may build one again someday, but it's probably not going to be the next course I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just because I don't, you know, I believe in trying to find an original hole first. You know, and the and the template is more of a fallback when you when you don't have a great idea for what to do with a particular green site. You know, sometimes like the seventeenth of Pacific Dunes is a redan and we tried as hard as we could to not build the redan there even though the first day we looked at it, it was like boy you could easily build a redan here so we were like let's not do that and then the more we tried to do something else it just didn't work and we finally just said you know what we're trying too hard to fight this it's going to be a really good hole if we just go with what if the first idea that popped into our heads and that's probably the best version of the redan hole that i've ever built Mm-hmm. because it really works well when you're playing downwind and the ball runs. So uh, the most underrated template holes. I love McDonald and Rainer's punch bowl greens. Um, you know, I love the concept of a punch bowl green in general, just, you know, a different kind of green site instead of 18 plateaus sitting up in the air with deep bunkers to the sides of them. Um, you know, and that's, you know, and that as an idea is something that you find on any piece of sandy ground. There's dunes and there's hollows and why not put a couple of greens in a hollow just for variety's sake. You know, McDonald and Rainer had a very specific version of it it's nearly always a left to right shot into the green. The green opens from the front left and there's a deep bunker right up, sticking right up into the green on the right hand side and kind of a, you know, a deep enough bunker that it's raised up over the bunker and falls back down into the green. And then the left side of the green is the bowl comes up into a ridge, usually like three feet high compared to the middle of the green. So, you know, if a ball catches that edge, it's spinning around into the green pretty hard. And if you happen to get over that edge, it's a pretty tough recovery shot because you're coming up over that and then everything's just flying away from you down to the bowl. And then, you know, this gr- so this green, a little of it may drain out the front, but most of it is draining around the bowl and out the back right behind the bunker. While I had a punch ball hole originally, it was the old, it was what they now play as the second hole in the tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't think we could 
rebuild it there for a couple of reasons. They built a pond to the left of the hole in between the second and third holes for the tournament. And they built a house like right next to the green on the right-hand side. So they kind of shifted the green over a little bit. And, you know, we just thought it was, you know, where the bowl drained out, there's now like fill and a house. So, you know, we couldn't really restore that. So we looked for a different hole on the golf course that didn't really have a um, a noteworthy green mm-hmm. as a place to do a version of that green concept. And we came up with the – it's 15 on the – as the members – or, yeah, it's 15 as the members play it, so it's six for the tournament. Mm-hmm. And that's the other green besides the Redan that we just built last year, so that this will oh. be the first tournament played on it. I don't know if it'll make the TV or not. Um, it's it's more or less a green that Eric Iverson and I designed. Then you know it's certainly based on the template that Rainer had, but it wasn't in that particular location before. So you know it's more of a taking a flyer on something than anything else we've done there. And I hope it's on TV because that's the one I'm most interested in watching how how that works for the players. It was a fairly flat green site to start with. Um, so we we had to shape quite a bit. You know, it's, it's actually as, as much restoration as I've done of those holes. It's the first time I tried to build that template from scratch. Uh-huh. Like really jack it up. Well, I guess Old McDonald we did too. But, uh-huh. but you know, really jack up those shapes to make it work. And, and we really struggled with it. It took like three days of... Build that up more. No, push it back down. <laughs> you know, just trying to get the feel of it right. I, I don't know if there's a uh, punch bowl on tour. I don't think Greenbrier has one. I don't remember. Greenbrier, uh, they interviewed us for the work at the Greenbrier 10 or 12 years ago when they were when they redid it the first time. And, of course, it's been redone again since then. So I don't, I don't remember it that well, whether, there, whether yeah. there was that green I, there. I'll have to ask. But I, I don't think there is one. It's that a, green does have, it has a fair amount of slope in it. And it's got some knobs in it, like the yeah, not not really sharp spines, not really sharp spines. But there's enough contour. You know, there's more contour in it than most of the greens at Wiley. So it'll be interesting to see how well it fits in. What do you think that Rainer did best at Wiley, in in terms of what was left? Hmm. Well, I'm sure he had a great 17th hole before they blew it up. Um, you know, I'm sure that w- one of the most special things about the golf course was now the hotel. Yeah, the routing. <laughs> yeah, uh, unfortunately. And and that's, you know, some of the holes we haven't tackled yet there are the holes in the middle of the back nine, like 14, 15, 16. Um you know, all three of them are dogleg holes and Rainer didn't build that many sharp doglegs on a lot of his courses. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't really have a template green at all. So we've kind of saved them for the end. You know, whatever we do is going to be a redesign. It's not going to be a restoration. And, you know, we've, you know, we've tried to be pretty faithful up till now about what we were going to do and really give ourselves time to think about, you know, what would fit in there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and we're still probably a year or two away from doing either any of those holes um do you know what's next for after this tournament i'm pretty sure that it's going to be the 10th and the 18th as they play for the tournament so the first hole for the members but you know the 18th is the one i'm you know, now that we've built up some trust and confidence in what we've been doing and assuming that the tournament goes okay, <laughs> uh, you know, the 18th hole is the one that it's always been such an easy hole for the event. It plays downwind. Mm -hmm. It's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a fairly long par five. It's like 560 or 570. But, you know, playing downwind, it's like they're hitting short irons at it yeah. a lot of the time. And, you know, it's not a rain or green. You know, this is the hole that was moved way inland to mm -hmm. make up for the taking away the hole at the beach. So we kind of have to start from scratch on it. And the only template that I can see that, fits in there and really one of the only templates that Rainer liked to use on a par five was from the long hole at St. Andrews mm -hmm. with a pretty severe, you know, and if you don't look just at Rainer's versions, but you think about the long hole at St. Andrews, you know, it plays downwind and of course it's got out of bounds, right. And hell bunker and a lot of, a lot of other things going on. But the green is pretty intense. Yeah. You know, it's kind of got a big false front and then it falls away from the line of play from right to left. And then it's got a like a left side where it connects over to the, to the green on the other side that's mm -hmm. kind of flatter but a pretty shallow target. And I'm thinking that we can build a green something like that for the event so that Yes, you can get to this green in two, but it's not so easy to hold, and you're going to have to think about where do you want to miss it. Yeah. And going back to, you know, what we discussed in the last podcast, having a green that falls away a little bit on a downwind hole will really make guys think about what kind of approach shot they're trying to play. We talked about recovery options too, and I just from years of watching that tournament, the recovery from around that green currently is pretty simple. Right. You know. And, you know, if, if we get it right, I mean, at St. Andrews, you know, missing in front and having the false front and the thing going away from you is a terribly hard shot. So, you know, just like the fall away green, you know, miss over the back is the best thing to do a fall away green. You know, that'll probably, you know, if I do it, that will probably be the way to play the hole. But then you've got to think about, well, they got, they've got like huge grandstands all around this thing. So they're going to have to give me some room yeah. to, you know, if that's going to be a place where guys are deliberately trying to play, you're going to have to have that much more space behind the green to make it work. But I think it's a, uh, you know, that'll be really going out in a limb. You know, if we've built something that, that some players are going to try to deliberately miss long, even though they can get there in two pretty easily. Uh, that's not what they're used to seeing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we've got the go ahead, but really how these, these last two greens that we've built 
workout for the tournament will have a lot to say on how daring I can be with the 18th green next year. Yeah, this, I mean, those two are a big change. That's a, it'll be, I'm, I'm way more excited now that I know that there's a punch bowl there. So yeah, I might be the very small minor, minority of tour, <laughs> tour fans, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty excited now. Um, so, uh, Peter Ostergaard has a question. So it says, uh, you've been critical of the engineered look at Rainer's bunkering at Fisher's saying it takes away from the natural beauty of the setting. Conversely, uh, you praise the good doctor at Cyprus for altering bunkering style based on the setting, you know, the trees, open coastline. Right. Wai has less of a traditional Rainer bunkering. Was this an effort by you to better match the landscape, or has the, his original look been altered over the years? His original look has been altered over the years quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And one of the hard things about, you know, if you close a golf course and restore it all at once, you, you can change the bunkering style to anything you want. When you do it a couple holes at a time or sort of in piecework, it's really hard to change the bunkering style very much from what's there because you would start with two holes or four holes that look radically different than the rest of them. And they might be, you know, I mean, at Wiley so far we've worked on you know, 11 and 14 one year and no, 13, not 14. Um, and then 17 and six the next year. So it's kind of random Yeah, where we're, you know, and, and four and seven one year. So it's kind of random where we are. And if you, you just have some, you know, you know, the, the really geometric flat sand bunker and steep grass face, uh, on the new holes and bunkers that were flashed up more on the old holes, it's hard to blend the two together. So, you know, Robert Chen Jones is the one who did the routing change for the golf course in the fifties or early sixties when they built a hotel and changed it. And he redid a bunch of the bunkering at the same time. So there's more flash sand from 1960 forward than what was there originally. You know, I don't think it looks that bad on that golf course. It's a very flat golf course. If you if you just had the flat sand bunkers and the grass faces, there wouldn't be much visual excitement to it. There also, you don't get as, you know, Hawaii's tropically, you don't get the same kind of shadows even mm-hmm. in the early and late in the day, quite the same way you do at more northern venues. So um, between that and just the way we've approached the thing a couple of holes at a time, we haven't tried to change the bunkering style tremendously from what they've had for the last 40 years. Um, you know, I... Personally, I don't think that the style of bunkering and especially how it's edged, you know, I think it gets way more attention than it should. Well, it's an easy thing to look at and take it's an away. E- yes, that's that's exactly why it gets the attention that it does, is it's one of the most visual things that we do. So everybody wants to comment on it. Um, but it doesn't change the playability of the golf course very much at all. Ultimately, that's what we're more interested in. Mm-hmm. What... Um... 
What's your favorite Rainer course? And this is from Spencer Warsick. You know, every time I get asked this question, I have to stop and think, well, okay, which are the McDonald ones that I have to throw out? And then there's some, you know, McDonald has a dozen courses to his name and there's a few of them like Chicago Golf Club that, you know, Chicago Golf Club, Rainer rebuilt yeah. almost completely in the 20s after McDonald kind of lost interest. Mm -hmm. And so if we count that as a Rainer course, that's definitely one of my favorite Rainer courses. Um, but it's still got McDonald's name attached to it too. You know, if we're counting McDonald courses, then National Golf Link certainly but you can't really count that as a Rainer course because Rainer just started working, helping out. He didn't know what golf out. was before that. No, he really <laughs> didn't. He was a surveyor, and he didn't know. You know, That's where he started learning about golf course architecture, but you can't give him any design credit for the national. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I suppose the highest-ranked Rainer courses are Fisher's Island and Chicago Golf, and it's... it's uh, hard to go past those i mean you know i've personally been more involved at camargo was one of the very first places that i consulted and we you know we've very slowly slowly restored it over like 30 years because restoration wasn't a thing in the 80s so you know we just started working on kind of one hole at a time but i was pretty much restoring it without trying to sell them on that being the thing to do until we got pretty far along um, and Yemen's Hall, which had been first ripped up pretty bad by a hurricane when I was working down in Myrtle Beach in the late 80s. And then, um, you know, the greens had just, the greens at Yemen's Hall were, the first time I saw them, they were about half the size that they are today. They'd shrunk up in the Depression, and they'd never mowed them back out big again. And then... They were common Bermuda greens, and the only way to get a good putting surface with common Bermuda greens was top dress the heck out of it because the grass was so coarse. So they shrunk the green, and then they just started top dressing the green as they knew it. So that little green pad got like built up like a foot higher than the rest of what the green used to be. It was the oddest look, one of the oddest looking things I'd ever seen on a golf course. Just you know a big old green pad sitting up in the air and then like a little mushroom growing on top of it yeah. that they mowed short. And that's where the flag always was. And you know, when I wrote the confidential guide the first time, that's basically how I described it. It was like, I didn't get into that much detail. I was like, if they could just restore the greens, it would really be something. And the green chairman wrote me a letter after he got my book and said, what do you mean? You know, they really had no concept of it, you know, where some of those ideas had come from or what all the templates were or how big the greens had been in the old days, even though they had like a detailed plan of it all. They, they have like some amazing uh, old photos too there, don't they? They do. But they, that's one of the only places that I've, that we've actually had Rainer's plan to work from, like with everything measured out, like a center line and exactly how far the bunker was and exactly how wide the fairway was at different points along the way. The only thing it didn't have, and the main thing we were doing was restoring the greens, it had like little 
little scratch marks like looking like caterpillars moving across the green where the contours were in the greens but it didn't you know it didn't say up down how high any of that we just had to base all that on the other rainer courses that we that we'd worked on um mark levinesque wants to know what renovations or restorations would you like to see done at rainer's course at yale Ooh. Well, Yale, a, a couple of years ago, they sort of informally approached me about being a consultant there, which I should love to take on. I mean, I, I really love that golf course. And at the same time, I haven't gotten around to trying to do it. You know, it's, well, I'm a Cornell guy, so I'm, I'm starting behind the eight ball there <laughs> working at Yale. And, of course, they didn't accept me when I wanted to go there in college, which was probably a good thing for my career because um, I wouldn't have been taking landscape architecture there. Um, but I think it's a terrific golf course. Um, they have done quite a bit of work on the bunkers over the years and they've kind of made some of them shallower and smaller and that's you know the first thing about Yale that's so impressive is the scale of it I mean the hills are bigger and the bunkers are deeper and bigger than pretty much any of Rainer's other courses so um, that's something you don't want to neuter and yet they have neutered it some in the interest of maintenance or uh, maintenance I think it's mostly maintenance I think some of it's playability that they yeah. think it's too hard even though you know if you go back and read about the golf course when it opened they made a big point of saying that they wanted it to be a physical test for the students and when I say physical I don't just mean hitting the ball square it's like walking up and down the hills and everything you know that was like promoted exercise as mackenzie used to say something that was good uh, that may have been that was not long after mackenzie's book was released so they may, might have gotten the idea from that but um i don't i don't know yale well enough i remember there's there's a couple of holes that I've always suspected there must have been a lot more going on in this hole originally. 16 is one. This is a short par five, and the green mm -hmm. is small and flat by the standards of everything else there. And I just think, well, there must have been something different here at some time. And the third hole, the, which is a wild little short par four with a ridge sticking in the fairway, plays along a pond on the right, and there's a couple of ridges sticking into the fairway. So if you drive away from the pond at all, you can't see the green. Mm-hmm. And the green site was moved at some point. Uh, it, it originally was like a wild punch bowl or even like a double punch bowl. I've heard it described, which I can't quite visualize. Um, I've never seen a great picture of it to know exactly what they're talking about. But I know that hole was a lot more interesting. You know, it's still an interesting hole now, mm -hmm. but I'm sure it, there was more to it before than there is now. That's uh, I I've heard about that double punch hole. Last uh, last question on Yale is the since you talked about a couple holes, Andrew Bailey wants to know. He wrote an extensive article on the 18th at Yale. What are your thoughts on the 18th at Yale? 
Uh, it's a hole that I've pretty much never seen anywhere else. Um, you could you could say at least part of it is you know like a Alps hole for a par five because you you know you're it's it's over 600 yards from the back tee and there's a you know it's on very hilly terrain up and down and left and right and then and then there's a big hill that you're if you take the left hand route to the green you're going over the crest of a hill something like 80 or 100 yards short of the green and then way downhill to the green so for most people unless you hit two great shots the third shot is blind over that hill to the green which is like wow this is pretty severe for a finish and and just you know i mean it kind of fits the old joke of you know oh we played 17 holes and now we're 600 yards from the clubhouse i guess we got to build a really long par five to get home (laughs) you know you look at it and you're like really did they you know did they did they design a lot of things around trying to get to this point to have this hole for the finish because it's not like their other courses yeah um it's really they didn't build a comparable hole to that, um, which is what makes it cool. Uh, so I like it because it's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, would I build a hole exactly like it? Well, I don't know. Uh, you know, the best part, honestly, the part that you remember most is the hill in front of the green, which if you don't want to play over, there's like a low fairway to the right to play around. Um, but it's a great tee shot from the back tee. There's mm-hmm. like, you're playing kind of into a valley at the start of it before it starts going up over the hill. There's a shoulder coming in from the right of the hole. If you're on the back tee, the shoulder's in just the perfect spot where you have to hit a really good drive to get over it. You know, and if you play left, then your second shot is going to be just cli- climbing straight up the hill for the second shot. Um, but you know, not many people are good enough to play that old back tee. You know, mm-hmm. most people are playing 50, 60 yards up from that, and, that you know, it doesn't have the same effect as it does from the back. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Last question, and then we'll we'll do overrated, underrated. Um, what – how do you think members of clubs that have, you know, been designed by a Banks, a Rainer, or a McDonald – can best protect and restore their features on a small budget? The simplest thing is just don't tear things up. I mean, (laughs) a deep bunker is a deep bunker, you know, trying to cut and fill to make life easier for players is, you know, a, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't really help them very much. I mean, if the bunkers, if you cut it, 12 foot deep bunker down to nine or 10 feet. It's still a deep bunker. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I think my advice would be what I, what my advice would be to most clubs, but people might take more heed of it in this case. uh, Let hazards be hazards. You know, don't worry about maintaining them to such a high level. And, you know, I mean, if you read McDonald's book, it's like trample a herd of elephants through the bunkers to make it difficult for guys. <laughs> I, you know, that's not quite the same as, as 
you know, line the bunker with something so it drains perfectly and then put in a perfect angular sand so everybody can hit a good sand shot. Yeah. Totally different concept. Um, and having rough bunkers costs a lot less. <laughs> yeah. It's a good maintenance. That's Without paying for elephant feet. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, you probably could afford elephant feet with the, what some of these things cost. But that's another topic for another day. Um, all right. Overrated, underrated. Okay. Uh, trade wins. Underrated. Hope they make a comeback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've seen that they are quite <laughs> quite important. Um, what, do you, uh, what about uh, Charles Banks? Underrated because really outside of the real nerds like us, most people never heard of him. And he did do at least a handful of really dramatic courses in the Northeast. Uh, the two that I've seen are Forest Gate in New Jersey and Whippoorwill in like upper Westchester County in New York, uh, mm -hmm. which... You know, both of them are kind of in the med area. There's so many good courses in the med area, including a bunch with more famous architects behind them that they kind of get overlooked. And I think, you know, at least 20, 30 years ago, neither one of those clubs was in great financial shape and they didn't take care of them very well. So it was really easy to overlook them on those grounds too. Mm -hmm. um, but they're, they're very dramatic courses. I mean, it's some of the, you know, banks built maybe because he had something to do with the Yale course. I mean, he built deep bunkers like Yale on mm -hmm. a lot of his work. And that's, that's the kind of terrain he had to work with. And he did not fight it. It's just like, okay, this is a steep hill. That means there's going to be a deep bunker here. Mm -hmm. As the steam shovel. Yes. <laughs> it's uh he like Rainer died early. It's, it's kind of a shame. Um, but, yeah, so be exciting to watch the tournament uh, this week. And uh, I, I'm I'm excited to see your changes at uh, YLI. It should be, I mean, I'm sure you'll be hopefully watching intently. And hopefully the PGA Tour is listening and hearing that we need to see the punch bowl. <laughs> I think it's the TV network that will make that call. And, yeah. I'd love to see a little bit of, a, bit of it this year. We need more punchful. Is the you know like the cowbell? We need to make like there a, you go. <laughs> that could be our hashtag for the week. So all right, well we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a uh, with a pod on uh, stream song. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.